For many copywriters, social media is a necessary evil. Many of us dread showing up on social media. I am one of those people. But we also realize visibility on social media can be a game changer for our business. For the 276th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, we're joined by Isai Arasi. Isai is a member of our Think Tank Mastermind, a copywriter, and a social media strategist who helps copywriters, oftentimes copywriters who dread social media, and helps them navigate social media so they can stand out to premium clients. And today, I am so excited to sit here with my co-host, Jared McDonald. So Jared, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Kira. Always a pleasure. It's been so long since we got to hang out, so I'm glad you're here today. And why don't you just introduce yourself, let us know who you are, what you do. Sure. Sounds good. Yeah. So uh, it's been a little while, but uh, yeah, if we haven't met, my name is Jared McDonald and I'm a growth coach for one-person service-based businesses, uh, helping with a lot of different uh, perspectives from sales to tech uh, and just overall just some of the challenges that I've found uh, that come easy to me but are uh, pretty headache-inducing for uh, my friends in the service-based business space. Um, and then on the client side, uh, I do a lot of UX strategy, user experience strategy, so customer journey mapping and customer research kind of main specialties there. And can you just share like the clients, the types of clients you typically work with? Yeah, yeah, they've it, it's ranged over the years, but largely um, enterprise, so kind of financial and uh, e-commerce as well. Okay, and I feel like Jared, you're one of those people who just can do everything. Um, so anytime I have any type of problem, tech-related automation, active campaign, I just uh, I just ask you or I refer people to you because you have all the answers to all types of tech questions. Do you feel like that's fair? Uh, I mean, I feel like you're way too kind, first off, because I definitely don't have all of the answers. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just all about helping, all about serving. And I think if I can help, I most certainly will. All right. So for today, um, before we jump into this conversation with our guest, uh, this week's sponsor is TCC IRL, the Copywriter Club in real life. So it's our big event, which is taking place in person in Nashville, Tennessee on March 28th through 30th. And it's been a while since we all hung out in person. So we are excited to get together, hang out, bring together some incredible speakers. And, you know, Jared, you've been to our event. So maybe rather than me plugging it um, in reading this promo copy on the page, you could just share what, what was your experience like at TCC IRL? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to sum it up, uh, to sum up multiple years into just a quick kind of pitch, but uh, I feel like it's going to sound a lot like your promo copy, not because you paid me to say this, <laughs> but just, just because <laughs> I love you guys and love your event. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been to, just for perspective too, for anybody listening, I mean, I, I not anymore because of COVID, but I went to conferences, probably 12 to 14 conferences a year all over the world. And Rob and Kira, not just because they're my friends, but because it's such an awesome event and uh, it is literally the top three, if not the favorite event of mine of the year. And um, the reason for that, I mean, obviously the content is great. You will learn a lot. But for me, what I love is just the the people that are attracted to this event and the connections that you'll make. And that's kind of consistent for a lot of conferences. But I think this one in particular, and I've told a lot of friends, I've told family about it. It's just the quality of the people. 
Uh, and every year I've gone, I've met new people and seen old friends. And even if you don't have that luxury, if this is your first time going, I would highly, highly, highly recommend you go. Thanks, Jared, for saying that. And of course, I want to know, you know, what would take us from number three to number one, but we can thought, talk about that. I thought you were going to say, of, of course, I want to, you know, pay you later. But no, <laughs> okay. I didn't receive any compensation for that. That too. That too. Uh, all right. So thank you. And if you're listening and you have any interest in this event, head over to thecopywriterclub.com backslash TCC IRL 2022. And we'll link to it in the show notes so you can check out the event. Now, let's jump into the interview with Isai. I think the first time I ever wrote something, I was probably eight. And I can't remember a time when I haven't been writing stories, poems, and a lot of really embarrassing stuff that my parents still kept. Um, But I never thought I would actually become a copywriter. Uh, What I thought I would become is... um, a trainer, somebody that helped people, um, helped people change, helped people become better versions of themselves. And that's what I did at my corporate job for almost, actually a couple, almost a decade. The story of how I became a copywriter from there is it's, it's very interesting and it's, um, it's, it's not at all a typical story of how somebody starts a business. But I'm really glad I got here because I feel like everything that I've learned, reading books, writing stories, uh, becoming a trainer, learning, uh, researching experiential learning and behavioral change, everything has tied in so beautifully with what I do today. So tell us more about that um, as a trainer. What were the things that that you did and how that applies to what you do as a copywriter? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was actually incredibly lucky to work with uh, some really good managers who prioritize employee well-being and prioritize training, which helped me focus on not just creating this cookie-cutter training, but actually designing programs that helped people change their behavior. So that was the first mandate I got. One of the first um, uh, jobs that I held as a trainer and the first things we worked on is how do we get high school kids to change the way they behave um, a part of that, and I've talked about this in many different platforms, is how do we get high school boys, um, especially seniors, to stop vandalizing the school and instead, um, whenever they have free time, get them to read books. And that felt like, like such a lofty goal when they actually first told me that this is what they wanted, uh, that I wasn't sure how we're going to do it. But we started from the basics, right? So we talk about when we do want people to change their behavior, um, a lot of old school thinking comes in. And this actually ties in with the way we have these scarcity tactics, right? We always think we can pressure people, we can scare people into doing something we want them to do. Unfortunately, that's, in my experience as a trainer, it's, it works in the short term, um, yes, but it's not sustainable and it often implodes or explodes in the worst way possible. So one of the things I learned was the only way you can help people change their behavior, you can help people um, help people become better is number one, understanding what they want. Um, go back to basics and talk to them and like to understand what they need, understand what they want, understand what they believe. And once you have... Um, a good understanding, once you understand them, then you create an environment which helps them change that belief. 
And once a belief is changed, the change in action is very, very easy to affect. So one of the things that we did for when we wanted high school boys to start reading books was number one, we looked, we completely overhauled the kind of books the library was talking. So we uh, we bought a, a bunch of ghost bombs. We bought we bought um a lot of um thrillers and um who done it mysteries and um Michael Crichton and sci-fi and we also stocked a lot of comic books because comic books are still legitimate. Um, it's still legitimate literature. Sometimes I lead I there was a period when I read a lot more comic books than books even. So we stopped all of that because we removed the judgment of what constitutes reading a book. It's not always your Charles Dickens and your Jane Austen. So when you want somebody to foster a reading habit, then you have to understand what they like and do that. So that was the basic because nobody thought to do that because everybody was thinking increase, increase supervision, make it mandatory and all of that, which was not working. So the second thing we did was... Um, we looked at okay, what would motivate? What would motivate them? How can we uh, make this a practice of uh, reading long term? Is when we we implemented a credit system. So every book they read, they got a few credits which they can spend towards something. And these are kids who are coming from extremely impoverished communities, so they did not have to. They did not have access to a lot of a lot of things, including stuff like footballs, like really good quality footballs, because these are jobs who are interested in primary sports. So we set like a very high goal of you have to have like 300 credits to um to be able to buy that football, where each book will give you like two to five credits based on the kind of book you were reading. And there were a bunch of other things. So everything actually worked together um, in so beautifully that in a couple of months, uh, the boys had just read everything uh, the school library had and they had to go out and buy more books. It, to date, that's my most successful behavioral change program. That's when I realized, um, and copywriters know this, there are content writers, there are people, who, there are people like for any price range who can just write content, right? who can write words to fill up your website. But really good copy, copy that actually helps you achieve your goal. That's premium. That takes years to master. Uh, even then, it takes it takes a long time to research and implement the right way. But it gets results. It's the same thing that I found with training. It starts with research. It starts with understanding who you're trying to help, and then it all fits together. And if you're if if it's not helping that person, if it's not built into what you do. No matter how good you are, it's not going to work. It's all about keeping that end person in mind and working towards that. And that's that's what I got to do for almost a decade in my training. Year after year, I I researched more and more into how training programs work, how adults learned, um, how people how people change, uh, human psychology. Most people hate change, right? So how do we help them? Even those who want to change cannot. We want to work out, we want to lose weight, but we can't stop eating junk food. So there's a lot of um, stuff stuff in there. So if you want to change that behavior, I spent a decade researching how do you do that? What are the exact steps that goes into helping somebody change their behavior? And that's pretty much what I did then. And that's luckily helping me really, really well uh, in my current role as a copywriter as well. Yeah, I, I love this idea. Obviously, you know, as copywriters, we are 
trying to get people to change their behavior in some way. And hopefully it's in a way that uh, positively impacts their life in, in some way, you know, like using a new product or, um, you know, hiring a coach, some, you know, whatever the thing might be. So you mentioned specifically understanding where the person is, um, their worldview, you know, what's their motivation and, and what's currently going on. And then also providing positive um, inducements or incentives for them to do something different. Is there anything else that you would think of uh, through that persuasion process that's worth mentioning? One other thing that I would say is the process that you're implementing, the process itself has to be fun. That's 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 the piece a lot of us miss. And, and thank you for asking this, Rob, because even when we're talking, it's, it's often very easy to overlook uh, this piece. Anything that's fun, it's easier to do. And uh, this is talked about in a book called Flow, right? Where you talk about um, if, if you want somebody to do something, there are two ways you can approach it. One, you make it easy. But there are so many easy things that people don't do uh, because it's it's just boring. A lot of people don't like folding laundry. I'm one of them. Like, I cannot. It's just something I cannot do. I Like, I would die before big force to do laundry and like fold clothes it's just it's just I cannot it's incredibly boring for me and the way that I solved it is I, I cannot um, I cannot watch Netflix unless I'm folding right I, I'm, unless I'm folding clothes so now I've added a layer of fun to that activity so now I'm able to do it so making the change easy is one part of it which is the part a lot of people understand that they do it well the more difficult part is to making it fun and that's the part we struggle with that's one of the reasons um uh I love quiz funnels so much. The quizzes are fun. Implementing a PDF that you've given me as a data packet is difficult because I have to read it, understand it, change my habits, implement it, and then see results. But quizzes, I can. it's fun to take and I immediately get results and I love it. So you need to implement both of these. It has to be a, a degree of easy, but you can't always make things completely easy for your clients. And again, even if you did, there are a lot of easy things that our clients and customers and prospects don't do. So you also need to make it fun so people will do the difficult things that you're asking them. Okay. Yeah, this is this is fantastic. The first, you know, seven minutes of, of chatting with you here, like masterclass on how do we get people to change behavior. So that's fantastic. Let's go back to the switch then from when you were a trainer to just starting out as a copywriter. What did you do to get your copywriting business started? Rob, in fact, I did not start out as a copywriter. I did. Uh, I actually started out after my training and when I had to quit my job uh, because of a bunch of personal reasons, I realized I didn't want to start over in another company and have to prove myself all over again. Then I decided I wanted to start off. Uh, I wanted to freelance as a career coach because I've been in HR. I've been in training. I can help people find placements. Um, and I was doing that and I realized I know how to do uh, training well i know how to do hr well but i don't know how to set like grow my business i don't know how to market it i don't know how to get clients that's when i started learning uh this, i discovered this whole online world it started by uh it started with sunny lenarduzzi's um youtube where i tried to figure out how to how do i get clients with youtube it started there and led to amy Porofale. it led to um uh, it led to prerna who's a copywriter from india and i didn't think somebody from India could actually break into that world and actually do that. And from then on, it led to um, a lot of different things, which finally led to me meeting you and Kira and working with you guys on the think tank, in the think tank. But initially it started that way. And the more I tried to build my business, I realized the most fun I was having 
was implementing these marketing strategies was in doing SEO and in, especially in copywriting. So when in, in all of these courses that I was taking, um, I was I was seeing much better results than everybody else uh, implementing those. So people started hiring me saying that, can you write my emails? Right? You seem to have a knack for doing that. Can you Can you help me write my YouTube video script? And that's when I made the switch. I realized this part is so much more fun. Um, and I love writing. I couldn't believe somebody would pay me uh, money. This is what this happened when I started training because I couldn't believe somebody would pay me to train. And I couldn't believe somebody would actually pay me to write. So the first few times, um, and you wouldn't believe it, the first time I wrote an entire launch sequence for a client, and she's still using it to this day because I'm still on her email list and I still get those emails. Um, I wrote like 11 email launch sequence for $600. Uh, and f- at that time, for me, it felt like, oh my God, somebody's paying me this much money to do this, uh, to do this job. And at that time, it was it was it was, it was quite a bit for me because uh, it was proof of concept that I have a skill that's valuable. So, why do you think it is that you were able to get so much more out of the training that you were taking, or get so many uh, great results as opposed to the other people who were you know taking the same kind of training? There are actually multiple reasons for that. And one thing, and this is going to fly directly in the face of everything that we commonly talk about in the online space. First is um, doing an actual full-time MBA has a ton of value. There's a lot of success that I have that I can directly track back to the training I received in my full-time MBA. Uh, I used to be deathly scared of public speaking. Uh, I couldn't get up on stage. Like I would shake, I, I would stutter, and I couldn't get like more than 10 words out on the stage. MBA completely cured me of that because we would do like like two to three presentations every week. And you got on stage and spoke so much that it completely cured me of that fear. And the second thing is there's so many um basics so there's so much basics and foundational training that i received in my mba that helped me a lot in implementing for instance in a lot of the programs we talk about your ideal audience your ideal client right and we have um, most courses give you the set of questionnaire they give you this framework and to tell you how to identify who your ideal audience is um, and I know, like the best courses have it, and that's where they start. And I know we do that in the think tank. I know we have that in the accelerator as well. And it's very foundational work. But because I had already done MBA, I had already done deep work into segmentation, psychographic segmentation. What are the different types of segmentation? What does it look like? And all of that. And because I already had that background, it was very easy for me to understand the foundation on which uh, the principles, the framework of ICA was built on. And I think, uh, and I actually, Jacob and I actually go very in depth into this on his podcast um, that we uh, recorded last month, where we actually go deep into how we are, we are now implementing strategies without a lot of times understanding the foundation on which it is built, right? So that really helped me. That was one part. The second part, um, the second reason I think I saw so much more success is I do not, um, I like implementing things fast. I like testing things. When somebody says this, somebody gives me a topic or a project, I like to create a minimum viable version of that and to quickly test it. And I always create that MVP. And because I'm testing and iterating and building on top of it, 
sometimes the thing that i'm putting out it looks um uh, it 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 looks like uh, it it needs a little bit of polish but very very quickly and it looks like a lot sooner than everybody else it looks like i have i have something really good and that did not happen by accident it is a lot more work to build an mvp and iterate it it's easier to wait for wait for it to be perfect and just put that out there but i think it's 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 these two things that really helped me stand out because um mba gave me the foundation and it gave me the training to do the grunt work to work on something until it 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 looks good it it, it actually is different and it works okay so before we go any further you mentioned your podcast interview with jacob uh, sukal um we'll link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to listen to uh, that discussion so i'm uh, just leaving that there uh, and then as far as like these things that set you apart obviously an mba isn't something that you know uh if you don't have an mba you can just go out and have that tomorrow right but the the mvp part is that quick implementation so do you have any tips for you know how do we approach that as as we're learning things in a course or we're learning things from a mentor how do you quickly put it into action so that you're proving the concept um, and, and getting something out of it? Oh, for sure. And I would actually like to add, Rob, that it, for me, it was an MBA. But now, uh, I, for me, it was an MBA in 2008, right? When there was no social media the way it is now, right? So for, at that time, MBA was the only resource. Now, MBA is not the only resource. Uh, everything that I learned uh, in my MBA, we can learn, but by reading but by reading the right books so today when somebody talks about brand branding i tell them to go back and read alvarez read jack trout um read uh, uh read primal branding and if you want to learn marketing go back and read philip kotler there are a bunch of other books that you should also read but you should definitely also read principles of marketing by philip kotler if you want to learn human behavior right uh, read uh, organizational behavior by stephen robbins these are foundational books and these guys are um, the founding fathers in their field for a reason and this will ground you in the basics of what you need to learn and you definitely need to know the ICA framework and all of that but this foundation will make you much give you much stronger understanding so even if you don't have an mba it does not mean you can't have all of this knowledge the knowledge is freely available now more than ever just make sure you're going to the source when you're learning something go back to the source try and understand what was what principles is this built on where is the original research who was the original um creator of uh, of this psychological principle and go back and try and go back as close to the original source as possible and you're 100% good to go that's what i do for a lot of marketing now um because my mba was just like it was very it was a decade ago right i'm going back and reading those books and they are so incredibly relevant even today so i just wanted to touch on that yeah i think that's a really good point we'll link to the the books that you specifically mentioned but you're right you you don't need to spend $90,000 on an mba or whatever it costs wherever you are for whatever the program is you can teach yourself but having said that there's still a, a little bit of time involved in that and so yeah let's jump to you know what are the things that you do to prove the concept and to do that fast implementation Uh, so one of the things I do, um, anytime that I do want to um, implement something, this is what I did when I started uh, my started as a freelancer. When I decided that I don't want to pick, I don't want to start, I don't want to be a career coach. I actually want to get into marketing, and I started out as a freelancer. So one of the things I did was when I approached clients, I told them, "I'm from India and I am new, so I would work for you for for like low." I started 
at like $10 an hour. I told you that's how much I would charge you, but I'm also going to learn on the job and implement this. And I found clients who still respected me um, uh, for my honesty, and they were completely okay with me learning and implementing things. And what I did was anytime that you are trying to do something, one of the things we do is, um, let's say you 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 want uh, you want to start um, you want to you want to launch a course, right? You want to launch a digital product, and we've seen some of uh, some of them do this uh, do do it really well in a think tank. And Ash did it fantastically um, with her with her pre-launch content. Um, Grace Ball when she's doing it. Uh, doing her mood boarding and she's doing the MVP version of it now. Uh, Kristen McIntyre is doing her MVP version of her VIP, um, uh, demystifying VIP uh, packages for copywriters. So what we do is instead of getting hung up on the tech and all the things that you don't know, right? Just focus on what is it that you do know? What is it that you do really well? So when I am uh, when I'm trying to implement something, I don't, um, I do have the habit of, and I think all copywriters have this in common. We try to go deep on that subject because we want to know, we want to learn and know everything there is to it. Uh, uh, and, and that's just our insatiable curiosity. And that's what makes us great copywriters. But even as you're doing that, start immediately taking an action. So for email, and, and this is easy to say and difficult to implement. I struggle with this in some areas as well. I still haven't launched my, uh, at the time we're speaking, I haven't uh, I haven't started sending out weekly emails. But my goal is by the time this airs, it would be up and I uh, I would be, it's it's slated uh, for a weekend, I'm going to start sending them out. But it everybody struggles with that and this is easy advice to give. But launch in a way that's simple. And that's what I'm going to do. My emails are not going to be these perfect weekly emails, but I'm going to make sure that anybody who signs up sees value. So what I'm going to do is because I read a book a week and um, it's just, I learn constantly learn so much and I have systems in place to make sure um, what I'm what I'm learning stays on top of on top, stays on top of mine. I'm going to share that in an email. And my email is not going to be very wordy. It's going to be quickly, what am I reading? What have I learned? And how can copywriters implement that in their business? So anybody signing up for my emails, it, it's going to take them two minutes to read my email. They're still going to get something very valuable and actionable. And it's going to be easy for me to implement as well. So this is an MVP. And I will probably layer a lot more strategy on top of it. A little bit later, I'll segment my list. I'll send customized uh, book recommendation. I will send customized weekly emails, all of that. But I'm not going to get hung up on all of that. Right now, it's only about how can I focus on what I enjoy and what I do really well, and how can I get that out there? I think if you make that your focus and you implement that in everything that you're trying to do, you would find that there's so much you will learn by taking action way more than you could have uh, in taking courses, right? And uh, I wanted to talk about this, um, in, in, especially in our think tank as well, Rob. If you see, um, a lot of the things that we're talking about in the think tank is not that different from the accelerator, if you think about it, right? We're all still um, working on our framework. We're just doing it at a much higher level. And the focus is actually on implementation because while the implementation looks very easy when you're learning the concept, it's really not. With every step of implementation comes a new level of learning, requires a new level of support and guidance and mentoring. That's what we get in the think tank. And that's what we pay much more for than a course, because that's the challenging part. So you 
And the only way to do that is to take action. That's that's something I struggle with, but that's something, uh, even while I struggle with it, that's something I continue to hold at the core of what I do and what I in the way that I work with my clients as well. Implement, learn, implement, learn, implement. That's the thing. Okay, so uh, you know, as you go through that process, this, this is fantastic. Um, Clearly, part of the learning process, though, is that not everything works. And so, you know, as you're trying out ideas and things fail, how do you how do you deal with that? Or how do you reset your expectations? How do you, you know, change up whatever the thing is that you're creating in order to iterate it towards a success? So the one the one way to do that is to go into go into it expecting to fail. And we, we have such a version a lot of times because of the way we are. Um, we're brought up in our schools because failing is wrong, passing is good. Uh, so we have such and such, we have a, like a ton of aversion towards failing. But what you should do instead is look at like every time you fail, you learn something. And that is something you could never have learned if you had gotten it right at the first place. There are so many people who are, who breeze through a bunch of things at, at the lower levels. And then when, after they hit a ceiling, we struggle because we didn't, we didn't learn the lessons. We didn't build up the stamina for failure at those early stages because we breeze past through those. And I'm doing that now because I, my business grows so quickly. I'm at that stage where now I have to face a lot more failures because I'm trying to build out a team. I'm trying to um, scale my agency. Like I'm hitting that ceiling where I have to fail over and over. And it's because I built that up much earlier in my business. I'm able to fail and still do well. So the way to do that is when something is not working, the most important thing is uh, if you're working with multiple stakeholders, talk to people. Talk to people with the curiosity of what happened. What happened? What did not work? Why did it not work? And remove judgment, judgment, uh, judging others or judging yourself. Remove all judgment and approach it with a sense of curiosity. What didn't work? And you can only do that when you go in expecting to fail. And failure is a very good thing. As long as you follow it up with checking what, what went wrong, identifying what went wrong, and just tweak it and make it better. And again, the next time, go in there with failure. And I love Peter Thiel talks about this, uh, how he wanted to invest in a company, but um, he wasn't very sure because the founders were very hesitant. They didn't have very firm answers for anything he asked. And they were very like, yeah, we're trying this. We're not sure. We're still testing this. And this. So he he wasn't very he, he didn't feel very confident. So he actually passed on that investment. The founders then the company they founded was Uber, right? Uber is so internationally successful, but those founders they went in saying that no, we're not sure. We think this will not work, so we're testing it. So they went in expecting to fail, and because they tested it so many failed and tested it so many times, the success is there for us to see. So that's what I would recommend. Um, just approach it with curiosity. When you remove judgment, every stakeholders, whether it's a client, a VA, or an employee, or um, your audience, everybody would, if, when you remove judgment, I mean, you remove emotions from that equation and only have curiosity, then everybody will be willing to give you the information that you need to make sure it goes better the next time. Yeah, it's a, that's a good approach to it. I, I can't remember who it was that said it, but um, the idea that it's not failure if you learn from it. You basically, you know, it's an experience, an, an experiment, an experience, a, a challenge. But as long as you're able to take something from it, it's not failure. Yeah. And I love, uh, it, there's a quote in Grey's Anatomy. I think this will resonate with a lot of my clients as well. But Meredith Grey, she says, um, failure is what progress looks like. 
that's that there's no other statement that has hit me that hard this progress is that progress is a journey that means the journey is just one failure after another that's that's the way to success and it's the only way to succeed because you're only succeeding which means you're not living up to your potential okay let's jump in here and talk about what stood out the most to you jared so as you listen to the interview what stood out yeah i mean there was a lot uh honestly the folding laundry comment kind of hit me right in the field but uh <laughs> in, in, in all seriousness though i think just awesome what she's doing with um you know in, in her history of kind of teaching young boys kind of how to read and that kind of resonated just because reading has been such a big part of my life as well and uh just even when i was a young kid to nowadays. So I think there was a lot there. And then um, just talking about habits and behavioral change, I think that um, that's definitely something that uh, we as marketers, copywriters definitely uh, zero in on. So I think there's a lot we could unpack there. And um, yeah, and just what she shared about kind of initially not knowing how to sell or kind of grow her business or not really know how to, how to market it in the beginning. I think that's a common thing that a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, behavior change. I mean, it just even as she was talking about taking these boys from, I, I believe she mentioned, you know, vandalizing school to, you know, enjoying and reading books regularly. That sounded, it sounds like such a huge transformation. Um, and she was able to do it. It, it. It's that stood out to me too. And I was thinking about how I'm trying to help my kids learn how to read, not learn how to read, learn how to love reading. They know how to read. They understand how to read. They have required reading at school. But, you know, how do we take them from feeling like reading is a chore to loving it? And that's, I'm not always sure how to do it, um, but I'm working on some ideas right now. And so it was fun to hear her talk about it because I'm actually doing the same thing as far as, you know, she mentioned filling the library for these, these students with books that actually interest them, like comic books and other um, more exciting thrillers and starting there to create that incentive and to line up their interests with the books. And so that's been a big change for me. I'm like, well, let me find books that actually interest my my kids rather than just giving them what I think interests them um, and seeing if that works. And then she also mentioned the reward and having that point system to lead to the prize, which I believe was a football. And so I'm all about rewards and the reward system too. So it's been working for my kids so far, but again, I'm at the beginning stages of this behavior change for them. So just listening to that, I was like, I feel like I'm on the right track and it's really cool to know this works. And it's also great to know that this is something we can do as copywriters uh, for our clients and we can do um, and, and learn and improve in this area. So Jared, how has this worked into your client work at all or into your personal life? Yeah, I'd answer both just because, I mean, just w- as you were saying that, I just, what stuck out to me is just how, how the lightning rod that is, uh, is cast or the, um, the connection that blows up when you, or I guess the person, you know, in this case, your kids is reading something or learning something that they're really interested in. And that comes with obviously knowing them and you as your mom, uh, or as their mom is going to be you're going to know them pretty well and get to know their interests but you know when you tie it into kind of a work context of kind of knowing knowing your audience and that's is that's a cliche i'm almost cringing saying it just because it's everywhere without any practical kind of tips and we're happy to go there and i think uh isai even talks about that but 
I think just it's amazing. I mean, even from my own personal experience of, you know, in school, not really enjoying some of the topics, uh, dare I say. And then once, you know, getting out and reading, reading um, articles and books on psychology and um, marketing and all these and human behavior and these things that became really interesting to me. It's amazing how, you know, that kind of childhood uh, reading addiction almost and it's it's with its its downfalls that's something i i definitely would love to talk about but i think um getting back to the application of what you're reading but i just think it's been nice to kind of see how obviously there was a massive interest for reading for me growing up but then um later on in life finding things that i really was interested in that related to my work uh it just you know i couldn't stop consuming and i think with that it's really important to apply what you're consuming and not kind of go down the full-time student route um obviously readers are leaders and we've heard all the, all, all the terms, but I think it's really, uh, important and, and beneficial to make sure that we're, uh, you know, applying and kind of, I guess, kind of factoring that into kind of counting the cost of what you're going to learn, whether it's a course or a book, like, do you have time to apply it before you buy the book or before you, before you buy the course, do you have the time to apply it, not just consume it, but to actually take the time to let it marinate and let it permeate and then apply it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, she also talked about her MBA in this conversation and, you know, she she mentioned, these weren't her exact words, that you could basically pursue your own MBA and just read you know, the foundational books and continue to read. And I know, you know, Asai is, is such a, you know, voracious reader. And I, I think about that often, you know, many copywriters we chat with consider going back to school at different times. and. Um, I just wonder, you know, could we pursue our own uh, MBA or own just any type of degree by just reading and just reading voraciously and adding multiple books to our bookshelf every week? Um, is that something that we can do? I tend to think that the benefit of doing it within a school and, and having oftentimes paying for it is that you feel that pressure to complete it and to apply it. And you may not feel that same pressure if you're doing it on your own. Um, and you aren't necessarily, you don't have any skin in the game, but what do you think as someone who loves to read, how do you view that, um, the learning capacity through books and your, how you build it into your schedule so that it does happen and you do apply it? Yeah. Building into your schedule is key and uh, kind of having that open time to be able to not feel guilty doing it. Right. I think sometimes when the when the hustle and bustle of whether it's personal life or work life or both and they converge and you know you're feeling almost guilty to kind of take half an hour an hour and read part of a book but um i think it's just also really important to just be you never know what you're learning in the moment so i think it's important to really document you know you don't have to obviously <laughs> write the whole book again but or the article but i think just really kind of keeping whether it's in in notion or paper or evernote or whatever you use the tech isn't really uh, important. I think it's just more so you never know what you're learning in the moment that could help you. And I think even looking at my career back in the day, like 15 years ago, you know, what I was doing, I'd have no, I'd have absolutely no clue that it would help me with what I'm doing today, but it did. And I just think always learning is such an important, uh, especially in, in this kind of, uh, thought leadership or kind of knowledge work space. I think it's just so important to always be learning and always refining your craft in both application as well as knowledge but i think it's just you might never know what you're consuming and it, and in the like at the time is how it's going to affect you down the road and i think it's just so important to cross pollinate is the term i love to use not that i'm an avid horticulturist or anything but 
the uh, just being able to uh, cross pollinate and kind of read books uh, and disciplines and kind of diversity of thought that you wouldn't normally. And I think that's kind of where you can become really dangerous is when you aren't reading all of the bestsellers necessarily that everyone's reading um, and being able to read some of those, but then also kind of reading other books that might pique your interest and, uh, and be able to kind of apply some of those learnings and start to form your own kind of knowledge web. Well, and you know, you, you mentioned that and it brings back all my memories of just t- different conversations we've had. You've shared your notes and notion. I've seen your notion. And so I know that you take a ton of notes when you learn something new or you're watching a training or you're reading a book. Can you just share a little bit more about that process for you? Because you're not just taking a couple bullets, writing a couple bullets like I do. You you, you have extensive notes. Um, do you have a, a process you go through when you read a book? Um, or is it just something like you figure it out book to book, training to training? Yeah, great question. I'm surprised that you're right. We've we've had some calls in the past and you've seen my notion and uh, I'm surprised you're still living to tell about it. So that's good. Because I I feel like, you know, you can't have an entirely clean, uh, you know, it's going to be a little messy, embrace the messy, <laughs> as one of my friends would say. But yeah, I think it's it's important to kind of just brain dump what's what's in your head. And I think the process or process, as some of us up in Canada say, you know, it's evolved over over time. And I think um, one, one gentleman who follows Tiago or Tiago Forte, uh, and his process of like progressive summarization, and that can be a time consuming endeavor, but it's essentially where you take, there's a great book called how to take great notes as well. And, um, basically r- taking a summary and as you're listening, whether it's audiobook or paper book or whichever it is, logging all your notes and then going back and, uh, another great tool is Readwise, uh, which can sync all of your uh, notes from like a Kindle or you actually has like an OCR scanner. And now we're really getting into the weeds. So I will, you can you can cut me off, Carrie. You can be like, Jared, we've, we've got to move on. We've got to move no, on. I you- love this. This is why I ask you all of my questions about all the tools. Always be trying new things. So, but yeah, Readwise is great. You can, you can take photos of paper books that you and it'll pick up your highlights. So however you do it. Uh, but just being able to just go back and, you know, distill down your massive notes. So uh, probably the note that you saw was just raw kind of notes and a little bit longer, uh, but kind of going back and basically highlighting or bolding the really the, the, the meat and potatoes, if you will, for lack of a better cliche of what was kind of the, the best parts of your summary. And you do that a couple more times so that when you go back and you write your own summary in your own words to kind of help with retention. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's obviously more time consuming cause, but I, I just, especially actually it's pretty timely. Cause I think for right now, even in the last kind of three or four months, I've really noticed that a lot of books that I'd read are, you know, I just, I forget what, what's, what's in them. And I, and I, and I think there's some really, there, there's so many good nuggets in there that I wanted to pull from. So I think that's kind of been one of my priorities this year is just to really, um, summarize and retain what I'm reading, even if it means I get to lose uh, or lose some of the books that I was reading uh, when I do my year in review or whatever it is at the end of the year uh, of how many I read. But um, yeah, I mean, there's so many different tools, but um, progressive summarization, uh, how to take great notes is a great book. And um, yeah, and there's another book too. It's just Pat Flynn and it's a, it's kind of an underrated book. It's less about note taking, but it's more of just kind of be the value of kind of being a, a generalist. Uh, not necessarily that's how you're going to market yourself, but just kind of being able to pull in uh, resources and experience and knowledge from different areas. 
So kind of tying back to what I was saying before. Yeah. And how do you apply it? So let's, I mean, because we're chatting about notes, you have these great notes, you've revisited them a couple of times, you've highlighted it, um, it's sinking in, but then what do you do to apply it in your business and life? Yeah, I would say just a couple of things, kind of commenting. So I think some of uh, when when you're switching up the like environment or like if you're going out for a walk and listening to an audio book, I mean, there's just by you being in a different environment and uh, you'll be able to be able to factor or kind of come up with new ideas that you wouldn't have thought of necessarily in your office at your computer. So I think really uh, just whenever you have an idea, whether you're reading something or not, just get it down right away because you will not remember it. Uh, I don't care how great I think my memory is. I will, and I, I just, I, I cringe at uh, what's been left on the, uh, what's been left on the cutting room floor, so to speak, through no intention of my own, uh, just by just forgetting and thinking that I'll do it later. Or, uh, so yeah, I think capturing that and then the taking the extra time to summarize uh, in your own words what you're reading. Um, and I think audiobooks can be fun that way just because you can just, it, obviously, you know, I won't endorse the driving thing, but I've definitely done it where, uh, if you're listening to an audiobook or something, uh, just record your own voice note of kind of what the chapter was that you just listened to. Uh, and that really helps because, again, if you listen to five, six, seven, or if you binge half the book, you're not going to remember each chapter. So those are just a couple things. But didn't think we'd nerd out on consuming uh, content. But I think it's, uh, yeah, but it's important because I think it can inspire you and go in a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, Rob mentioned this, too, in, in one of his comments where, you know, the learning process of kind of just applying what you are learning part of the learning process as rob was saying is like not is that not everything works so kind of just rather than consuming 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 necessarily all the time putting it into practice pretty quickly even if that means turning away what you may want to consume next just in favor of applying and taking that extra time um, and i just think of like back when i was like learning languages it's like you can take a month to learn how to perfectly say a phrase uh or think in your head and stress about how you're going to say it, but you'll learn much faster by kind of hopping on a call with a native speaker and they'll correct you on your pronunciation within the first five minutes. How many languages do you speak or what, what languages do you speak? Oh my gosh. Any more? No, uh, just French. That's it. Nothing, just French. No, no biggie. Nothing too fantastic. Yeah. Okay. That's impressive. Uh, so, you know, you also mentioned folding laundry and what Isai shared about laundry is that you can make processes and behavior changes fun and implementing that change fun. And so I'm glad, you know, she shared she'll watch Netflix while folding laundry, which is, it's smart. I'm going to try that. Um, but I was also thinking, you know, this is a good reminder just to make our client experiences fun. And sometimes, you know, with our own clients, we, they do have homework for us that, you know, they need to complete an intake form and, you know, we've geeked out about intake forms before. We won't go down that rabbit hole right now. But sometimes that's not actually fun for a client. They want the outcome. They want their website. They want their email sequence. But to get to that point, you know, and fill out and answer 40 questions, which is what I make my clients do, um, it may not be fun for them. And so I think it's also important to think about, well, how can we make it fun? How can we create an enjoyable, fun, surprising, delightful experience throughout the entire process, especially during those points in the process where we know it's a sticky spot and they may give up or they may be like, holy cow, why did I sign up for this? I have to do all of this homework. Don't they know I'm, doesn't Kira know I'm busy? And so, you know, you focused on your client experience. How, how do you, how do you think about creating a positive, fun experience for your clients? 
100%. I just kind of, I was just nodding. I mean, you obviously can't see me, but I was just nodding. What I felt I, what, it. What, what, what you're, you felt it. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know me for a while, but yeah, I think just in terms of designing an experience, I think there's so much to unpack there. And I think, uh, you know, when you mentioned about a client saying, oh, like, don't you know me? Do I really have to do this? And I think sometimes if, and you can kind of weed these people out earlier on, and, and I'm not saying that was your client, but usually the the clients that you want to work with who are kind of paying you the rates that you are desiring are like they will pay more for a teacher so if you assume that role of teacher and kind of guide guide along the process as early as possible like even before you close them i mean that's obviously reflected in rates but then also like you said that kind of enjoyable um experience for them and you being able to kind of walk them through and guide that along and there's so many other intangibles that are shown while you do that but um I know my friend Marcus Sheridan will talk a lot about that, about how kind of the role of a teacher and how teachers essentially, it's not just about money, but not just getting paid more, but it just, it, it totally reframes the relationship um, as early as possible when you can do that. Cause it kind of shows obviously you've done it before and you're an expert in those things. I'm not saying that I'm an expert by any means, but I think, um, I think it's just so important to not only, I mean, like I was saying before about knowing your audience, it's so it is important to know your audience and have a target audience. And we've talked about personas and jobs to be done and we could go through that till the cows come home. But, um, but also to kind of the second portion of that is what is the experience that you're giving or providing for those, for your audience, um, especially in a client sense, which is so, so important. Okay. Well, I've got to ask you then, t tell me more about the role of the teacher. Let's say as far as if I'm listening and I'm like, I like that idea. I want to charge, you know, premium rates and I want to show up as a teacher and guide my clients through the process. That's what I want to do. How, how do I do it? So could you give us an example or two of how we could do it with our next client? I mean, it, it's, it's a, it can be a scary thing to do. So I know if you're, if you're listening and it's, and, and kind of taking the reins and kind of, uh, owning the, the process, it can be a little scary sometimes because you might think that you're being direct or being, uh, you know, a little uh, bossy or those kinds of things, or depending on your personality, you may really enjoy being bossy. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, but really just owning, owning the whole process. So from start to finish and that, you know, from the first touch point that they have with you being able to, for example, uh, meeting prep. And uh, this is something that I've gone deep on before, but just even, uh, meeting reminders and, you know, prepping just something as simple as, Hey, this call that we're going to be on calls are such a meetings, whether they're in the sales process or after you've worked with a, or you've been working with a client are such an opportunity to flip the status quo on its head. And, uh, obviously, uh, Annie Bacher and workshop facilitation and those principles highly recommend you follow her, um, because she can, talk a lot about, um, we've geeked out over this too, is just being able to facilitate an experience or a meeting experience. So that's one opportunity, but to kind of really get down tactical just for a minute is just really, so say you're in your sales process and you have either a first, if you're doing a one call process or a two call process, whichever one, uh, just being able to kind of just send either a video or an email reminder ahead of time about what to expect, the agenda, what we're going to cover, what the outcome of the meeting is, if you have any questions, um, and, and kind of just teaching along the way and kind of saying, Hey, we're going to be on video. So make sure that you are prepped. Uh, I'm not going to surprise you. And just kind of, you know, we talk about empathy a lot. We talk about, uh, these things, but putting them into practice, uh, sometimes kind of living out your values, I think is, is really important and we won't go off on that tangent, but, uh, yeah, but really being able to 
own own the process and essentially walk them along uh walk them along through it and meetings are one and then uh proposals as well uh and then onboarding uh, like 100 percent. all right well i've got one last question for you um we talk about failure as well and and Isai talks about you know how that's really how you learn and, and failure is what progress looks like can you can you share a recent failure? Are you open to sharing, you know, maybe an example of progress that you made that stemmed from a failure? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Professional failure, personal failure. I mean, you, <laughs> all, you, all the failures. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's important to just be okay with admitting that. I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say to expect it. I think it's this fine line mindset wise to kind of anticipate and know that you're going to fail and you'll get great learnings out of that. But I think you know, if you go into something thinking you're going to fail, I don't think that's necessarily going to um, set you up well in the in the right frame of mind. But um, but definitely kind of encouraging it and embracing it uh, when it happens because it will. And yeah, I mean, one one thing that I just think of is just you know, with COVID last year, uh, you know, late into the year, uh, lost a friend, and you know, it it rocked me. So I just kind of realized that hey, I was too busy to kind of get back to him, and he was kind of declining health wise with um, some health issues. And that just really rattled me. So I think it just was like, okay, I'm, you know, I took a few months off and fulfilled my client work, but kind of just unplugged. And it was, you know, there was a lot of shame there. There was a lot of, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I'm not showing up. I've got these plans for products and, you know, these, all these things and that I'm, are in the works. And I just essentially paused them all and just focused on life and, you know, went back to family and reprioritized things. So I think it's easy to get carried away. Uh, I think it's so hard to shut off sometimes, but I think that was kind of, I guess a little, it, it felt like a perf- work kind of failure or business failure, but um, also a personal one too, because you know, I wasn't there for that person. Right. But then it's, it shows the progress of just pausing to realize and reprioritize, which will help you moving forward and strengthen your relationships moving forward. But at the time it feels like a failure in many ways, even though it's progress, big picture. Mm-hmm. And I was talking with somebody um, somebody else about this too, who's kind of in a similar uh, situation. And I think we won't go down the mental health route, but I think that's, that's a, there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say st- uh, stigma, but I just think there can be a lot of like, as a business owner, freelancer, entrepreneur, what, however you're at in your business. I mean, you can definitely with uh, a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, uh, for taking time for yourself, uh, whether it's to recover from something or just to take personal time. Uh, and you and I were even chatting about this, Kira, just about kind of um, being present when you have that time to be off or to, uh, be with your family or be with uh, friends or whichever. Yeah. I mean, we can dig a lot deeper into mental health, (laughs) so we're gonna, we're gonna bring you back for that episode, continue that conversation. But for now, let's get back into the episode and dive into social media strategy. So let's talk about what your business looks like today. Um, you know, I, I know you're not necessarily doing what you did as you were just starting out. You're starting to build a team, but what is the thing that you focus? What's the problem that you solve? The package that you've created in order to help your clients? Okay, this is my favorite question, and this is something I I, I can get on a soapbox and talk for hours, uh, but. And it really sets me off as well. So the biggest problem that I'm solving is for uh, is for copywriters who want to attract premium clients. And I help them do that with social media content. 
I think there's so much misinformation and so much wrong advice uh, that's being peddled out in the market. And it's not done, it's not done intentionally. It's just for the wrong audience. Um, nobody is talking specifically about social media strategy for copywriters. So copywriters are following advice that is meant for that's meant for businesses, that's meant for course creators and marketing-focused businesses, right? Where your success and revenue depends on traffic. So they're following advice that's meant for them and we're burning out or they're implementing things which which they don't need to as much as they do. And often it takes their entire business on a different, um, on a dif- in a different direction because their audience is now different and what their audience, de- audience is demanding is different. So they 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 lose focus and that's what i'm trying to solve um i I help i help service providers attract premium clients with the way that they focus their messaging with the type of content they put out and with this type of strategy so it's not about likes and comments but it's about the prospect when they get on the call they know what your framework is they know your values they know how you work and it's it's a smooth sales call from that point. That's that's the service that I'm providing for my clients at the moment. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about some of those mistakes that, you know, as we as we listen to the bad advice, you know, what are the things, let, let's go deeper on that. Like, what are the things that we're doing that are hurting our business and what should we do instead? Okay, um, so the first mistake, and as a social media manager, I will say this, the first mistake is there is this, when you're starting out your business, you don't need to create social media content. And and this advice, I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear a lot of people are are definitely sharing. They're saying you don't need to be you don't you don't need to be creating content on social media because there is a point in which you are not a hundred percent certain what your niche is. Uh, you're not hundred percent certain what your brand is, who you're attracting. So that is not the point to focus on on social media. That's that's the point where you should be working with different kinds of projects and different kinds of clients to first figure out who you want to work with and what kind of projects do you want to work on. And that is the first stage. And um, it's, it's it's a freelancer stage, right? Where you're not a business owner or you're not a, a copywriter yet. You're still a freelancer because you're still shopping to figure out what you like doing. At that time, if you create content, you're then um, pigeonholing yourself into only doing certain types of things where you shouldn't be doing that. You, you're, 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 your way of thinking at that time should be divergent where you're saying yes to different kinds of things to see what you like. So that is the first uh, advice. And But luckily now more and more people are telling stuff, buddy copywriters that, no, you don't need to focus on creating content. But what you do need to do is have an optimized social media profile. Even if you're not posting content, especially optimized LinkedIn profile. Because when somebody, and you can test that, go, go, to, go to incognito and type in your name, um, I I bet you uh, the, the first three results in the first three results will be your LinkedIn profile. And anybody who's thinking of hiring you, they're going to click on that profile because they want to know what your experience is. They want to know if you have the skills and experience and the knowledge to do the service that you are promising that you can do for them. So that's so stage one, do not create content. Optimize your profile so you can you can have a place where people can you can send people. Even if you have a website, website is content that you have created. People will trust LinkedIn because LinkedIn also has endorsements. It has recommendations and it has social proof built in because you went to a certain college, you've worked with certain people 
and you have certain years of experience doing certain things. So it has social proof built in, so people will check you out. So that's the second advice uh, uh, that people don't, service providers do not hear. They think I don't need to be on social media means just be non-existent. And I talked about that. I talk about that in my content because I had a client, um, a, a premium client for like a very big project that uh, they, they, they were in the same Facebook group as me. They saw that I was posting a ton of content. They loved what I was talking about. We got on a call. It went really well. So he said he's going to bring his co-founder on so we can finalize the contract. But before he could do that, he sent me an email saying, hey, I, I Googled you, but um, your profile is not updated. You don't have a website. It seems a little bit sketchy. Can you send me some details? Can you send me a portfolio and some other details that I can share with my co-founder? And can you send me some sort of proof right, of your um, experience? That's when I realized, um, even if I'm not posting content, it's important that it reflects my social media profiles, reflect who I am. And that's that's important to do as well. That's the second um, bad advice. The worst advice that I have heard, um, I have heard that's peddled out everywhere and which is so not true for copywriters is in order to prove your expertise, in order to be um, a premium copywriter, in order to charge premium prices, you have to create how-to content. You have to create content that provides value, right? You have to pro create content that teaches. And what happens is that when you're teaching, you're attracting an audience that wants to DIY, right? And I highly, um, I highly doubt, Rob, you and Kira would actually click on and um, read something that says how to write a social media caption. I highly doubt that's content that will appeal to you at the stage that you are now. Yeah, probably not me. I mean, probably at any stage, it wouldn't appeal to me so <laughs> right? much. But yeah I, exactly. yeah, I get what you're saying. Exactly. But if there is content that actually talks about um, how, what type of strategy is, uh, what type of social media strategy you should choose based on your business, that you might be interested in. Because you would say, okay, I have a business that's of a certain type. Does this apply to my business? That is something you might actually be interested in. Or um, if there's a social media, uh, if there's a social media strategist that you are considering hiring for your brand or for, or for TCC, um, you would actually look at how, what is the process? And if I create a thing about this is my process, this is my framework. And that's why we talk so much about framework within the think tank and in the accelerator as well. So what is, what is the framework? What is the way in which I um, implement? That's important. That you want to know to decide whether or not this is a good fit for what you need. Right. So there are so many different things that you could talk about that would actually appeal to a premium client, which which is which is definitely, definitely not uh, a how to content. So that is the second uh, bad advice. And the third advice, which um, uh, which I don't know who started it and I don't know how this got so popular is posting the exact same copy in all the platforms. So I see there are people that I follow who post the same thing on their personal Facebook profile, the exact same caption on Instagram, the exact same thing on LinkedIn, and the exact same copy in their email. I'm sure you've seen that as well. Yeah, I think I've done that before. <laughs> it's very common. I don't know how this got so popular. so popular. But here's the thing. When you're saying that, and there is a reason why people follow you on multiple platforms. People who follow you on LinkedIn, because they want to hear uh, thought-provoking, in-depth content from you. Right? People follow you on Instagram, 
because they want to know the real you. They want to see you on a day-to-day, like who are you? They want to get to know you as a person. They follow you on Twitter because they want um, snackable content. It's easy to digest. They want your email so they can get even more in-depth with you on topics at their own leisure, right? When you're posting the exact same content on multiple platforms, you're essentially telling them that, hey, you don't need to follow me on different platforms. It's going to be the same thing. Just follow me on one. That's enough. Right. Yeah. So it would limit engagement if you're trying to, if you're doing the same thing everywhere, there's no point. Yeah, exactly. There is no point in doing that. But if you have, um, so what we do for our clients for whom we manage multiple platforms is we take the same core message, but we modify it for each platform. So what happens is I'm hearing the same message. So for instance, if it is for the copywriters club um, and you're talking about, let's say you're promoting TCC IRL. Uh, then you would say the importance of connecting one-on-one, right? The importance of real relationships over networking, right? Let's say you're talking about that. Then what I would do uh, for you is I would have, uh, at first, I would create maybe the email or a podcast or a blog post that goes really in-depth on that topic, right? And then I would repurpose that into a LinkedIn post, which is very text-focused. It's very logical and talks about uh, what that is. And then I will turn that into an Instagram carousel where you go one by one, but it's pictographic because Instagram still is a very visual um, visual platform. And then I will take uh, tweets, um, like quotes, and like snappy sentences and we'll repurpose that and push that on Twitter. And then we will take passages from it, trim it, uh, tweak it, and make it into an email. So what happens now is anybody who's following you on multiple platforms they're hearing the same message, but they were like, oh, I saw a tweet from Rob about uh, about something about TCC. And then I go to LinkedIn and I see something else. Oh, interesting. So TCC is happening next year. I should probably go. And then they, when they're on Instagram, they actually see it. Oh, wow. TCC covers this much. I don't know. There was actual one-on-one. There was, a, there was an actual networking uh, time built into this. I, I didn't realize that. And then when they get the email, they see it and like, oh my God, this sounds really good. Um, I think I should sign up for this because this sounds amazing. So what's happened is you've hit them with the same message, but because you've put it in different packages, every piece is now working towards moving them one step closer towards conversion. As opposed to when you are posting the same thing, they will, they will start reading. They're like, oh yeah, I've already read this. Skip. Right? That's the difference. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So before we go any further with this, I want to clarify. So at the very beginning was we we're talking about, you know, our approach to social media, you said new copywriters should not be creating content, but it, it's not, it's not necessarily uh, con- content, any, any content, right? There is some content. Um, it's just not teaching content. Instead, they should be, you know, talking about their projects or documenting. Is that, is that a correct assumption? Yeah, I, w- I was saying that they shouldn't start out by creating content until they're clear on what they niche and their audience is. They should first experiment with different things to be get clarity, have their framework dialed in. And it's only after they do that should they focus on creating content. At that stage, they should only have an optimized profile, which they can send traffic towards because they still need to engage with other people's content and other people's platforms to drive traffic to their profile. So that's stage okay, one. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Exactly. And once they, are, once they are certain, once they're confident, once they have a framework, then they can start creating content. But even then, um, the content is not about how to. And, and then that will actually bring us to the last, uh, last point that I want to touch upon 
on this. And so they still need to create content, but be very strategic about what type of content they create. And there is the time has long passed where you can just be on one platform and make two. It doesn't work like that anymore. If you are a serious business, you need to be at least on two platforms. You need to be on a platform that's driving traffic and you need to be on a platform for nurture. You need both kinds of platform for your business to grow. Instagram is not a traffic platform. It's a nurture platform. If you're only on Instagram, you need to bring the traffic to your Instagram either by doing podcasting or doing IG lives with other people or driving um, your email traffic to your Instagram, you need to do that because Instagram does not organically drive traffic anymore. It's very difficult to do that. And as a copywriter who does not need, who's not looking to go viral and have 10,000 followers, you cannot compete with course creators in that space. Uh, right now, LinkedIn is a fantastic traffic platform. It will not remain, probably somewhere around next year, it'll change. Maybe in a year, it'll change. But even right now, it's a, a fantastic platform for organic growth so that can be your search platform but i ideally your search platform should be google youtube or pinterest you have to be on one of the three and you have to use one social media platform for nurture there's and i and going forward you have to be on multiple platforms so somebody who misses your instagram post will catch you on twitter you need to be on the platform of choice of your audience you need to be on that and it's, it's pretty soon it's not going to be optional and then I have one last tip left. Yeah. Well, before we get to the last tip, let me just, I, I want to clarify this. So um, you're saying that um, Instagram is mostly a nurture uh, format, which means that the the people that we're engaging with there, we're creating friendships or relationships with, but it's not necessarily going to sell a program. Is that is that what you're saying? Or you can still sell there, but you might. Uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm asking for some clarity there. Yeah. yeah so what I'm saying is um, you can sell there. Instagram is fantastic for building relationship and going deeper with people uh, and, and, and converting them and um, having those conversations. It's great for that. What it's not great for is driving traffic to your profile. Like 10% of your own audience will only will see your post. Even if you have even your own followers, not all of them will see your post. Right. So it's not great for traffic. It's great for like getting in deeper with people. And there are a lot of other things that we do to make sure uh, people see the posts, the tips and tricks that you can do. But again, it's a hustle. So you shouldn't use it as a traffic platform. You shouldn't rely on Instagram to send you traffic. You should rely on Instagram to help you build a relationship with your followers. Your traffic should come from awareness. Okay, cool. And then the last tip that you had? Open your inbox. And look at all the people whose emails you're opening and reading on the regular. And I bet you, and I bet you that 90% of those people you're also following on social media. Or you know in real life. I Like 90%, like I will confidently challenge anybody. If somebody is not the kid, I would love to meet you and talk to you and I'd learn who you're following if that's not the case. But 90% of the people who are opening, you are opening emails for are people you're also following on, on social media because you relate to them as a real person. So even if you're relying on email marketing to do the heavy lifting in your business, you still need to be on social media. It is not optional anymore. Okay. Yeah, that, that also makes sense. And I think that's probably true of me. I, I definitely 
open the emails of the people that I follow uh, and respect and you know want to learn from. So that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, okay, so I, I, we're going to run out of time before I get to ask all of the questions that I have for you, Sai. But um, one of the things that I think you know people may be asking, you mentioned that you work in and live in India. Um, and there's this, there's this, um, I think assumption that we can go to India or a place like the Philippines or Vietnam and hire people, uh, to get, you know, decent work at a very, very low price, but that's not your, that's not what you do at all. You charge premium prices and, um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how you do that as somebody who's working, um, from India with clients around the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in that way, I, I don't want to say that I've been lucky so far in my career that every single client that I've worked with, they have respected me for my ideas and, uh, and for my talent and my skills, instead of treating me as somebody they could work with for cheap. And I've had clients tell me they're lucky they got to hire me uh, at this stage in my business because they got they got premium service uh, for pennies on the dollar. Um, and they've tried to do right by me as much as they could. And I've been lucky that way. But one thing that we need to consider is um, as you're hiring um, anybody, even overseas VA, as that's what I started out as, um, when we do start out at a lower cost, anybody who is actually skilled and anybody who can give you the solution, actually give you the value that you need, are going to quickly level up and start charging premium prices. So only people who are still charging low-end prices, are you are not going to get the results that you want from them. So if for admin, uh, for all of that, yeah, you can go and you can find somebody who's charging uh, a lower dollar amount, but it will still reflect in the quality of service you get because that's not the way to treat an employee because that is not the because that becomes a part of your company culture. And just like values are important for an individual, culture is very, very important for a business. This culture is the value of a business. So if you are looking to save money by um looking to hire for cheap then you're going to put that out there and I, i'm not um, i'm not very spiritual and I, I but i even i believe that when that is your mindset then like attracts like you're still going to attract clients who have that um, who have that mindset as well and you're going to attract employees when you grow your business who have similar mindsets of figuring out where can i cut corners so that is not what i would recommend and this is a type of the type of service i provide the type of clients i work with is um, I used to target copywriters, introverted copywriters who struggled on social media. That was my niche. And I actually moved away from that. And I'm only now working with copywriters who want to attract premium clients. And the reason I do that is I want people to get ROI from what I do for them. I want to charge premium prices, but I want to make sure that my clients are seeing 10x results from the from the dollar amount they're investing in me, which means I want to provide that level of service and i'll tell you rob this i found it to be true that uh, it's a lot more competitive to charge 300 dollars for social media than it is to charge 600 800 dollars because the talk is like it's not that crowded people desperately need high quality service providers high quality copywriters to who would not miss deadline who will get my voice right who will get me content that converts who will actually help me have a business and roi impact and if you can get yourself to that place, you can charge the premium dollar because you're confident you are going to help your clients get the premium results. And that's where 
um, that's where VA is, regardless of our location, that's where we are moving towards. And I think when you are looking to hire somebody, that's the goal you should have as well. Is there somebody who's invested in my success? Because that's how, that's how much they're charging and they want to make sure I can continue to work with them. That's that's what I would advise for anybody who's either looking to hire a VA or a social media manager or anybody who's looking to get hired as well. That's such an important point. You know, it, it's, it is easier to compete at the top if you're solving the problem that your clients have uh, as opposed to, you know, producing direct or more of the same, you know, in, in the sort of bottom tier of any market. And so I, I like that you really, that you point that out. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Um, and I love that. And um, to that end, uh, like even the, uh, the ideas that we talk about uh, on my, in my social content and um, even in the lead magnet that I provide, I talk about how do we give instant value? How can people quickly get something out of this? Um, and see results and see value and understand that that's going to be their experience throughout uh, throughout their relationship with me and my team. Awesome. Okay. And I, I want to talk a little bit about your team and some of the things that you're trying to do there. Um, tell us about, you know, how you bring people onto your team, um, you know, how you're paying them, you know, do you have to tell them what to do? Like, how do they take on the roles and, and you know, work within the business that you're creating? Okay. Uh, so, like I said, this was a this was a, a long trial and error uh, process for me. Even with 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 a lot of background in HR and actually training and how to hire and how to train employees, it was still a struggle for me um, hiring and bringing on employees that I exclusively have to manage. So, one of the books I highly recommend uh, for anybody looking to hire or set up a business is the E Myth, um, and I will. You can link to that in the show notes, Rob. I think everybody who's trying to start a business should read that book because it's fantastic. Because it felt like he starts off with a story of um, how this burnt out business owner is trying to hire somebody to lighten the load. And he could have been writing about me. That entire story could have been about me. And so the first thing that I did, uh, I made all the mistakes. I dumped work on my first hire. I let them flounder and figure out what to do. Um, I paid. I made them work six days a week. Um, well, I paid them well, but they still uh, did not get any feedback. Everything was last minute and urgent and difficult. There were no processes and all of that. It was very painful. And I slowly learned from that. And then uh, even then I hired the wrong person and then I had to let them go because they were completely not the good fit. Uh, and out of those lessons, uh, out of all of those mistakes are these key lessons that I learned. Number one, so now when I hire somebody, I start the process way ahead like I need to hire somebody uh, in the next three months. So I'm going to start looking now because my process right now is very long. Um, I do interviews, I do test projects and all of that. And even while I do that, and, and I don't have criteria around their qualification or the experience, as long as they're able to do the job well and they take feedback. So there is a concept called assessment center. Um, anybody who's interested can actually Google that and learn like, learn more about what it is because all of my frameworks are built on the foundations assessment center is the foundation on which i built um, my pro- my processes so i do paid projects i do the exact kind of projects that they're going to implement in my business i have them do that as a process during the interview process itself and i see how well are they able to uh, do the work and then i give them feedback and i have them correct the work and send it back that's to check how well they respond to feedback and how well they understand the feedback and implement the changes. So that is one part. 
Uh, the next most challenging part has been in training. And uh, Maggie says that uh, in small business, uh, she has a small business podcast and I will send you the link to that as well, Rob. She talks about the realities of hiring and she puts it so beautifully. Uh, she talks about even if you hire the most unicorn, the most talented, motivated, highly driven employee, it'll still take you three months to get them to a place where you want them to be. That's what I saw. My team right now is fantastic. They're individually supremely talented. They're very motivated and uh, they're, they're always eager to learn and implement, but it still takes me three to four months to train them fully to a place where they can learn very hard. Uh, in terms of training, uh, make it collaborative. It's not about you telling them something. Uh, as a part of my training process, it's them telling me what they're going to be doing. Because uh, people will forget what you tell them. They will always remember what they told you. So have them talk back. So we call them teachbacks. We, we have that built into the training process. That's number two. The third process is how are they compensated? So I compensate very well. I pay them um, I pay them obviously in Indian currency, but they're compensated really well. Um, I, I, I pay much better than what they could earn anywhere else. And again, I can do that because I'm from India and the currency exchange works in my favor. But what I also do, because I, I understand that money is not the only thing that motivates uh, employees. So they don't have fixed working hours. Um, and I definitely do not track hours. Even for my employees, I do not track hours. There's two hours in a day that everybody's supposed to work. So we can do any collaborative work and last minute meetings. But apart from those two hours, everybody's free to work at their own pace. That's one. I don't, I don't micromanage. Um, I train them, I support them, I encourage them, and then I have them implement things on their own. The second thing is, um, uh, right now we're at five-day work week, but I'm looking to move towards four-day work week because I want work-life balance for me and I want that for my employees as well. And I know that only when I, I demonstrate the values that are important to me, uh, that will become culture and that culture will affect my marketing and everything, the way they deliver results. They deliver um, uh, work in my company and for the clients. It will have that quality as well because they're rested and they're happy to be at work, happy to be doing what they're doing. Um, so little things like that. We also have pay that's tied in with um, performance. So they can, uh, salary increases, not just increments, but uh, for instance, we do social media. So if they are 100% in the client's social media without missing a single deadline, they get completion bonus. And next year, we are we are trying to implement a version of profit sharing where anytime a client gets results, they get a bonus. Uh, we're not charging the client extra and we're going to cut into profitability for that, which is why we're sort of naming it profit sharing. But it's to make sure that they have they have a slice and they get a slice of the pie and they feel like they are, uh, they feel motivated to go for the result and that. But ultimately, what's worked really well for me, Robert, that's what I'm trying to implement more of this week as well, is my employees are not responsible for the action. They're responsible for the results. And when I train them, empower them, support them, and there's a concept called servant leader or servant manager. Again, you can Google that to understand what that means. It's when my job is to make their job easier. That's it. That's all I do. But ultimately, they are the project owners. They are the uh, they are the ones that I need to serve. So because they are responsible for results, and once I've done that, they feel a lot more empowered and motivated, and they feel a sense of ownership with what they do. And that has actually led to much better quality uh, 
of work than trying to track hours and trying to micromanage and trying to make sure they're not trying to have the mindset that my employees are trying to scam me. This is just so much better than that. Yeah, I think there's just so much good thinking that you've done on how to build a team and how to treat your employees. When we first met, Sai, I remember you saying that one of your goals was to help women uh, grow their own businesses and and to exceed, uh, succeed in business. I mean, we only have a minute or two left, but would you mind just sharing what that goal looks like for you and how you plan on doing that in the coming years? Uh, it's actually coming here, Rob. We're moving along on that. Um, I do need to hire one or maybe two more people early next year. But after that, I'm, I'm setting up a, a training academy, which is going to where we're going to pay women salary to come and learn English, learn social media and learn marketing and all of that. We're going to pay them to come and learn. And these are women who are um, who, who have been who have gone through marital abuse. These are women who've gone through sexual abuse. And these are women who normally would not have the kind of lifestyle that we can help them provide. And my goal is after the next two hires, anybody, everybody that I hire will be from the women that we are training. And the clients will also know that. Like Tom's shoes, the way that they do that and their branding, my goal is to showcase these women and the kind of work they do on our websites and on our social. So clients know that when they're hiring us, they're not just hiring a social media manager, but they're completely changing the life of a woman who could not have imagined buying a house on her own, like ever. And they're making, they're having that impact and they're making that difference in somebody's life. And that's that's the impact by which I want to measure whether or not my business is successful. And my goal is to launch it uh, by August next year. We've, we've already started work on it. And uh, this is this is going to be my most important impact that I have um, in the world. And I'm, I'm very, very excited. Yeah, I, I just, I, I love that goal. And obviously, you know, we're hoping that we can contribute in some way and, and helping you, you know, make that happen. So um, I just, yeah, again, I love it. And congratulations to you on on setting your sights on, on making that happen. Um, okay, Asai, we're at the end of our hour. If people want to you know, connect with you, uh, follow you on social media, wherever, where should they go? Uh, so I live on LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. Um, it's Isai uh, Arasi. Um, I will leave all the links here because name, my name is hard to pronounce, which is why um, I go by my brand, which is Elysian, uh, which again, I realize it's still harder to, hard to pronounce and spell uh, for a lot of us, but it, it has a lot of meaning for me. Uh, Elysian means paradise uh, in French. And for me, the idea is that we work towards creating, making the world a better place than we found it. So that's that's the story behind the brand. But anywhere you can find me at Elysian.in. That's where I am on Instagram. Um, I hang out in Instagram a lot. I don't um, a lot as well. So these are the two best places to reach me. But uh, the very talented Daniel Lamb is working on my website content. Uh, but that's going to be a while. But once that is ready, it'll be um, uh, it's Elysian.in. Again, I'll leave the link in. Uh, you can just come and subscribe to my emails there. Uh, but the website itself, probably will take a little bit longer. Awesome. Thank you, Sai. We appreciate you taking the time to talk about your business and all of the amazing advice you've provided. Thank you so much, Rob. Uh, you and Kira have been so instrumental uh, in my success this year, and I'm really happy to be here. I only regret I didn't get the chance to go a little bit deeper into that, uh, but I'll probably continue this conversation. My, my socials, when the episode does air, um, I would also love to talk about like uh, the impact Think Tank has had on this journey and I would, uh, so if you follow me, you can 
you can continue the story and can learn more about what's happening uh, over there. And I would love to talk to you there as well. That's the end of our interview with Isai Arasi. Before we head out, Jared, let's cover the rest of this conversation. You know, what what should we touch on that was really that really stood out to you and something that you'll possibly implement in your own business? Absolutely. I think content, whether it's on social or elsewhere, uh, you know, not being a, about likes and comments. And I think we can get so caught up in those vanity metrics. But, um, you know, what she was talking about in terms of having content being used as a tool to uh, have people prepared for a sales call. And I think that's obviously an avenue that I could go down pretty deep on, but I'm pretty passionate about that. But also uh, just how important it is to kind of prime people for uh, and again, creating content that's either attracting, and again, whether even if it's social media or not, but just this, this whether it's offline or on your website or PDFs or whatever it is, but just being able to create different types of content that are related to sales and not just kind of awareness. So, you know, like content that will attract people or repel people from you and, and those things. Yeah. And, and highlighting the how-to content, I know, you know, Asai talks a lot about how to and how we we should really avoid that as writers if we want to use social media to attract premium clients because it, what you end up doing oftentimes is attracting a bunch of writers which isn't a bad thing if that's your audience and you have offers for other writers great then create all the how-to content you'd like but if your goal is to book some premium clients that are operating in different spaces and and at high levels in their business and aren't trying to figure out how to write a high converting email, they don't want to think about it because they want to hire you to think about it. Those are the premium clients. And they're oftentimes too busy and just have too many other priorities in their head to focus on how to write great subject lines. So that content won't resonate the same way that it would resonate if you talk about how you're different from other email strategist and highlighting your process and your framework and setting yourself apart from everyone else in the space so that you're showing I am not just a writer, I'm a thought leader, I'm a problem solver. If you work with me, I, I'm i going to solve this problem for you and help you reach your goals. Um, so I think that switch is really important because again, like we, we see a ton of writers we follow on social media who are creating how-to content and may not be, may struggle and wonder why they're not attracting the right clients. Yeah. Especially if they're looking at wanting to work with, like you said, that premium service provider. And just as you were saying that with framework and, uh, your process and those other types of, um, uh, deliverables or, or pieces of content you could create. I just thought of that, um, session when you had Todd Brown in and he was talking about reverse engineering your offer and really kind of unpacking it all the way back to really kind of find that separation. And that was, that was a big, that was a big deal. Yeah. And for you, how do you, do you show up on social media frequently or how do you, I mean, I'm not really on social media, so I don't know how you show up on social media. Um, but how do you approach your own business presence on social? It's <laughs> a good question. I mean, you can try and find me. It's like, where's Waldo? Uh, if we're going back to books from the beginning, trying to find Jared on social media, but, uh, yeah, I think it's it's obviously important, and I think I've I've been really social offline and uh, by going to conferences and uh, just just enjoying people and hopping on calls regularly every week offline. But there's obviously one thousand percent a need to uh, be on 
social media. And I, and I like what Isai shared about just kind of having, you know, needing two platforms, one for search and one for nurturing. And I think that was a, that was a cool way to spin it, whether it's like a Google and or YouTube, or I mean, ideally both, but, or kind of having a nurturing platform as well. And, uh, yeah, to kind of let people see the more human side of you and kind of get to know you. But in terms of my own business, just largely, like I said, offline and, uh, kind of being ungoogleable for a while and just kind of keeping my head down, doing my thing with clients and really refining. And I think it kind of ties back to one thing that Isai was saying just about, um, basically like wanting to be able to refine what you do. And not that I've needed to do that over the last few years, but just especially if you're starting out, being able to really get clients and be able to apply what you're learning and figure out what you like, what you don't like, what your niche is. And, um, and I know you go deep into that in the accelerator and the think tank too, about really refining and your audience and those, um, the value there as well. And I, I just think that, I mean, that, that would be, that is pretty big just because, uh, I'm thinking of the book company of one as well, which is one of my all time favorite books. I read it every year. I'm reading it right now cause it's the new year, but just talking about kind of the best, you know, the, or not the best, but the companies, companies of one just want to get better instead of bigger necessarily. And just always, uh, and one of the benefits of being, if you don't have a team yet, or you are, uh, solo is that you can pivot and you can fail faster and you won't have as many eyeballs on you. So I think, uh, I feel like it would be pretty <laughs> anxiety inducing if you have thousands of followers and you're just continuing, but there is value to kind of failing in public too and kind of owning that and sharing those uh, learnings as well. So I think it just self-awareness, I think coming back to, you know, what, what is going to work for you or what may work for me may not work for you and uh, may not be in line with your personality and your brand and, and what you want to be doing. But yeah. And also, you know, you, you've been intentional about building your business offline and going to, I mean, how many events did you go to or attend in 2019? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think it was like 16 or 18. Right. So you, I mean, you have been intentional about, um, working your charm and working the room in person. Again, to, too kind. To Gary, build too kind. the Jared charm, um, to build your business because that's worked for you and you've, you've had a, you know, a really successful business. So I think the important part is like, it's not, there's not one way, like you said, and it's just being really intentional about it. And it's not like if you're off social media, you're not working and focused on building your business and building relationships. You could be, uh, of course, it's been more difficult over the last few years. And that's where social media can really make up for the fact that we can't, we haven't been able to attend those events. Um, but I think it's important to just be, be clear that like you have been doing that. You've just been doing it offline and that's what's worked best for you. Yeah. And then, like you said, just being intentional and being strategic about it. Uh, and there's people just crushing it on LinkedIn right now because there's, they, they have a strategy. They've bought either a course or they've been testing, uh, different lengths of posts and commenting on, and, uh, and LinkedIn still is good for organic and the, the kind of the rare last, last platform standing for that. So yeah, like you said, I think it's just, it, it, it varies. And I just was, the people, the, the, the strategy I had for conferences was never actually even just to sell or to get clients. And it actually kind of weirded out people up here. I remember talking to my mom and talking to my, um, just my friends up here. They're like, Oh, you're, you're going to this conference. You're going to a conference again. You know, are you going, do you get clients from this conference? I'm like, nah, I may not. And they're like, well, then why are you going? I'm like, well, to, to meet people. And they're like, 
but that's a lot of money just to meet people. And I'm like, yeah, but I'll be seen. I'll be, you'll be able to see right through me if I'm, you know, the person that's wanting to kind of give you my quote business card without even hearing your last name yet. But, um, yeah. And just kind of wanting to meet speakers. That was kind of my big, my big thing is kind of looking at the agenda ahead of time, going deep on who's speaking, learning what I can about them, and then kind of going up to them after their, after their talk and uh, connecting that way. And I know they would never find me on social media in that case. So just being able to kind of have a direct line to them and by popping up sometimes at the same conferences, they see you over multiple times, sometimes in different parts of the world. So some, once there was in Scotland and then, you know, two weeks later it was in Chicago and person's like, okay, who are, who are you? Like, okay. So you seem to be doing okay. If I can see you in multiple parts of the world. So, um, not to say I was like, I mean, I'm, I'm big on, you know, a debt-free business and, um, I know Prenna and my anchor amazing at talking about them or talking about that. But, um, yeah, I just, obviously I wasn't just going into the red to just, just go on a conference binge, but, I think uh, that was just a little bit of extra context. So yeah, well, it sends a, it sends a message if you're showing up to a conference, especially if people see you at multiple conferences. It shows that you're you're taking your craft seriously. You're investing in relationships. You're investing in your space. You're aware of industry trends. Like it, all of that feeds into it nicely. Um, and just to go back to what Isai was saying about um, optimizing your LinkedIn profile too, if even if this is you're not focused heavily on social in your business, um, just having that optimized profile is is so important to have that home base. And you know, even she shared that example about how she was talking to a client and they didn't they couldn't find her website. I don't think she had a website at the time. And so, you know, how important that is. And I know I've shared referrals with copywriters many times, and either they don't have a website or um, they have the LinkedIn profile, but it hasn't really been optimized. So it doesn't, it doesn't work for them. It ends up possibly even working against them. And they could be the most talented copywriter, content writer, and they could be professional and all the things deliver on time. But if they don't have that um, home base and have that social proof and have all of that dialed in, you know, they could lose the opportunity to work with some great clients. So that, you know, that stuck with me. Just get those pieces. Like if you don't have the website up, okay, but then make sure your LinkedIn profile is dialed in. So if you can send people there until you get the website up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just missing out on uh, opportunities you you may not even know you have or have, or could have had just from not having the right materials or the, the right content. Absolutely. So Isai and Rob talked about, um, you know, really giving the ROI to clients and and how that can really help you land more premium clients at that level. Like that's that's critical to what we do. Um, so how how do you think about that in your own business as far as that ROI and speaking to it when you land clients, when you're on sales calls? How do you how do you approach that? Yeah, ROI is such a juicy, juicy topic just because it's so essential. And, you know, I think of our friends that are in the course launch space and can really, I don't want to say easily, but probably more easily than certain strategy projects be able to be tied directly to revenue and it be measurable in that sense. And I know Asai mentioned something like that on, uh, you know, when she was speaking just about the goal of kind of the return being 10 times what they paid you. So if they pay you 2,500 for something, the result you'll result in 25 
5k in additional revenue. And I think uh, there's another uh, guy I like to follow a lot. He's Canadian, but kind of moved to the States and his niche is kind of taking service-based businesses or online entrepreneurs from six figures to seven and Scott Oldford. And he talks and, you know, he talked about that a little bit just about, um, you know, if, if, if you can't do that, then like it'd be pretty bold to just say, if you can't get 10 times what they're paying you, you shouldn't be in business, but that's a little, that's a little extreme, but I think, I think it's such a juicy topic because I think it's important to definitely want to desire that. And I think it can move mountains for you with clients for prioritization of projects. So I know for me, I work with clients over a long term and we have so many ideas and projects in the parking lot or backlog or whatever you want to call it. And it's nice because it kind of puts on them the prioritization. And then it's amazing how you can kind of earn a bit of I don't want to say leash or a little bit of leeway because they, they will acknowledge that if, okay, we need to do something more uh, strategy oriented or something that doesn't have a deliberate uh, outcome in terms of dollars and cents that's reflected that way uh, in terms of like customer research or um, like a journey mapping workshop or something like that. And, you know, they'll be more open to that and they'll be okay with that. Um, But I think, yeah, I think ROI is just such a, it's obviously so important. And I think there's kind of tying back to what we were saying before about kind of knowing your audience and knowing who you're working with and getting to know your clients as people, uh, not just as companies and uh, being able to deliver kind of that, I don't want to say the word premium, but just an experience that obviously does, does what you want to do in terms of your deliverables and you're fulfilling your scope of work and those things, but ways to kind of go beyond that. And especially if you're working with like a bigger company that has multiple people, uh, that you'll be talking to, uh, throughout the course of your project. I think it's, yeah, it's important to kind of get, get to know those people, you know, where they're from and what they like and what they don't like just personally, what their kids' names are. And I think that's really where, you know, Kira, when we were mentioning earlier about kind of fun, uh, I think that's more fun is when, you know, the clients you work with, you know, if they text you or you text them, you know, they respect your boundaries. They don't, um, like, like rates are obviously one thing. And then obviously the flip side of that ROI being for clients in terms of uh, what they're getting out of the deal. But I think just the, the intangibles or kind of the, the personal side uh, is, is I think really where um, comfort and lack of stress and um, yeah, just enjoyment comes from. Yeah. Now is probably a good time to mention your interview on the Copywriter Club podcast, episode 242, where we talked with you about many different things, but um, we highlighted the 28 month client and that most, the majority of your clients have worked with you for 28 months on average. And, um, and when you think about that, you know, how much an ROI, you know, how much value you're providing over that extended period of time that will continue well beyond the 28 months. Like that's when you can really feel that boost of confidence too, when you jump on the next sales call, because you know what you were able to do over those 28 months. So anyone listening wants to check that out, we'll link to episode 242 in the show notes. And then it just kind of going back to the ROI though, I think the cool part, you know, you mentioned is the 10 X scene, you know, the value you're providing. So it's always there and approaching every project. It sounds like that's what you were saying, approaching the project, really thinking about it seriously and thinking about, you know, how am I going to deliver the ROI on this one project or on this retainer over the next year? And I mean, if that sounds stressful to anyone as you're listening, you're like, ah, how do I do that? You know, how do I get to 10x? It's, you're probably already doing it. I feel like most of us are already doing it. We're just not great at tracking it and speaking to it and pulling in the 
the data and the numbers to say, here's here's the value I typically provide because it extends far beyond the project or even again, like the 28 months, the value can really show up over the next five to 10 years, depending on the type of work you're doing. And so most of us are already doing this. We are 10Xing. We just aren't aware of it. We haven't had that data to collect from the clients two, you know, two months later, two years later. Um, so it's harder to speak to it when we don't we haven't asked those hard questions because oftentimes it's uncomfortable questions that probably, you know, for you, Jared, it's less, less uncomfortable because you do this frequently, but for many copywriters, it's hard to ask about the results from a project and even like, Hey, have you used that copy in another launch? Have you used that copy anywhere else? You know, how is that helping you? And so I guess just, I'm just want to kind of add that note that we're probably doing it. So we don't have to stress over doing it. We can keep it top of mind, but let's just speak to it more and be clear about what we're doing. Absolutely. Well, and 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 don't stress as well if you're not. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that every one of my clients over the however many years it's been has gotten 10x return on every dollar that they've paid me. Uh, I think so. If you know, even if you look at you know Facebook ads or the, obviously talking about return on ad spend is such a ROAS is such a huge term to talk about. But even a, a three three times return, four times return, uh, is still a no brainer for people to invest. So I just, as you're listening, don't. Again, I'm not going to say that uh, every one of my clients has been a 10x return. I, I think, uh, kind of tying back to what you were saying too, Kira, earlier, just about the value of being an expert and that you've done it before, and they want to hire someone who is just going to take it off their plate. That that is even if it doesn't result in, I mean, obviously, ideally, you want to <laughs> 10x your return on what they're paying you. But even if you're just solving that pain for them and taking it off their hands and doing it competently and doing it well, doing it on time and all these other intangibles um, can still go a massively long way. Right. Other benefits, you know, taking stress away from that person because they know you're handling it and they're not handling it so they can sleep better at night. I mean, that's a huge benefit. Like sleep, I mean, sleep matters. So there's so many other benefits there that we can, we can talk about, but, you know, as we wrap, um, I guess one last note I will mention is that I, I really loved Isai's mission to help other women and, you know, help them learn how to speak English and then learn social media so that she can help them, you know, build their own businesses or possibly train them to work within her agency. And that's, you know, having that why behind our businesses is so important. And so I just, I love that this is part of her mission. That really, that seemed really cool too. hundred percent. Yeah. Just saying that she wants to feature, uh, the people to kind of get to know who they're, so clients can get to know who they're hiring. And I mean, it's also a bold and I, I like bold projects or, uh, missions too, because, you know, wanting to kind of create her own hiring feeding system so she can scale that way. Um, but kind of doing good and making change in the world as well. I think it's uh, yeah, very, very, uh, interesting and exciting to kind of follow along as she, as she builds it. This has been the copywriter club podcast with Kira hug and Asai Asari and, uh, go to TCC IRL, do it, just do it. If you've been debating, go get your ticket now, go Nashville's great awesome city, but the people you'll meet, the relationships will last a lifetime. So as we were talking about clients and longevity in terms of value, the conference will pay it for itself over and over again. Uh, maybe not in the client sense, but maybe in the client sense, but then just the people that you'll be able to lean on in the future and just really bright, 
intelligent, uh, really cool people to be around, go to the event. That's all I can say. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out Jared's episode. Again, we shared that episode is 242. Or you can check out episode 54, going way back, about building quiz funnels with Shanti Zach. Or you could check out and or you could check out episode 106 about using psychology in your copy with Kirsty Fanton. Um, and the intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. A big thank you to you, Jared, for co-hosting. This was really fun. And also, um, also, I just, I always learn a lot. I learn a ton whenever I interview you, you know, speak, speak to you on private phone calls. Like I always just take away a lot from what you have to share and what you've done in your business. So thanks for jumping in here. I really appreciate it. And if anyone listening wants to connect with you, uh, where can they go? Yeah, you can just go to my website. So mrjaredmack.com, uh, M-R-J-A-R-E-D-M-A-C.com, uh, or just shoot me an email. Hello at mrjaredmack.com. Uh, happy to chat. Uh, lots of content and helpful resources kind of coming down the pipe uh, to kind of help you work with better clients. And uh, just to follow up what you were saying, Kira, feelings mutual. Uh, love chatting with you. This has been so much fun. Thank you for having me on again. And uh, yeah, just really exciting to see what uh, what this year holds for you and Rob, because you've already been off to such an awesome start. All right. Thanks, Jared. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club.